if you are currently an employed physician, you cannot think, I'm going to go into private practice and have had your head in the sand. You are uniquely positioned at the moment, okay? Pay attention to what is going on. Ask for the reports. They may not necessarily give you the detailed financials, but you certainly should be able to get billing reports. How many patients did you see? What's the payer mix? All right. You know, are you seeing mostly Medicare? Are you seeing mostly comp? Can you, can you, you know, manipulate your payer mix by, there are a number of things we can talk about how you do that, but get reports from how many referral sources do you have? If they won't give you that report, keep track of that yourself. Understand every aspect of how the practice that you're currently in works. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 139 of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. Today I have a very special guest. I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Sandra Weitz, who is an interventional pain physician. She's also a savvy business person who has created, I mean, she, she's done a lot of things. She's a consultant, she's a coach, she's an accomplished private practitioner and a business person. She has an immense amount of knowledge and encouragement to offer to the specifically the pain management community, but more broadly to anybody interested in private practice. So really excited to be joined by Dr. White. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So the genesis of our meeting, you know, Dr. White, you you have this, what now I guess is like a side business with the, the practicebuildingmd.com. And I think a lot of your, you engage a lot with physicians who are interested in private practice or think they are and are you know, and, you know, we were just talking about like Facebook groups where they tend to convene, tend to share ideas or share discouragements in some cases. Why don't you give us a sense for some of the things that you've seen lately among doctors who think that they want private practice or maybe are earnestly moving in that direction, but are really encountering some headwinds from a lot of different places. So can I say a couple of things first? Number Please. one, I am a board certified anesthesiologist, board fellowship trained, board certified pain specialist. I, however, would not characterize myself as an interventional pain specialist because I really believe in a multi-modality, multidisciplinary approach. And as you and I will probably get into in this conversation, part of my success has really been in being able to vertically and horizontally integrate revenue streams as a function of pain management. And I think that's really important because that's very different than just being an interventionalist. So that's number one. Number two, I wouldn't tell you that this is a side gig, that I got into this as a side version of my existing practice. Let me clarify for the record that I actually sold my ambulatory surgery to a publicly traded company. I sold the building I built to a REIT. As a result of that, right, 
I saw that there were physicians complaining about how dissatisfied they were with medicine, how they felt that they were a cog in the wheel, that they had no control over anything, that, you know, basically they were making less money and they were working longer hours and they were essentially somebody's boy. Doesn't matter what your gender is, they were somebody's boy. And it just infuriated me because the reality is, is that private practice is alive and well. And if you learn the business of medicine, if you understand how to run a practice, then you can actually be incredibly successful, right? And this idea that you can't make money in medicine, that basically you're being asked to sacrifice patient care in order to make money is just a fallacy. Right. And, and essentially, the, the reason that I decided to start a podcast, start you know, a Facebook group, et cetera, was really out of tremendous frustration with the woe is me, the world is coming to an end, I want to quit medicine attitude. Because the reality is, is that if everybody has that attitude, if everybody needs a side gig, then there's not going to be anybody left to take care of us anymore. Absolutely. So, you know, I, w- I want to hear about your the career arc that you have sort of traversed. And I'm curious to know, I- I'm sure that you didn't graduate residency or fellowship and kind of have this perspective. So I would love to zoom in on a couple of the learning experiences that you've had along the way that have shaped the, the current way that you see medicine and business. Absolutely. So no, I didn't get to this place overnight. I did a surgery internship, an anesthesia residency, and a pain management fellowship all at UCSF. And this was at a time where really they were teaching or practicing this multidisciplinary, multimodality approach to pain. And really, I came to understand that pain is a biopsychosocial disease, that there's a physical component There certainly is a psych component. Anybody who's a pain doctor listening to this is probably nodding their heads going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people suffer with depression, anxiety because of their pain and social, you know, it it interferes with your social interactions, your family, your job, every aspect. Okay. And if you look at, and this has nothing to do with finance, but if you look at the studies that are out there, basically somebody who has pain for more than three months or six months, depending on who you read, is defined to have chronic pain and they are going to have this psych component. So this is where I came from at UCSF. So what happened next? Well, as a fellow, the guy was running the pain service quit. Like a week before, I was to become an attending at UCSF. And my chairman, a guy named Ron Miller, who probably people know because he wrote the anesthesia book, textbook, said to me, Tag, you're it. We're going to make you the head of the pain service. And I thought to myself, okay, I have absolutely no clue what I'm doing, but that's wonderful. So I did that for five years. And fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on, you know, which lens you look at it with, they appointed me at the age of 30, I was 30 years old, to the finance committee for the Department of Anesthesia. Now, I just want to stop here and give everybody the visual of a 30-year-old woman in the late 90s at a table with a bunch of 50, 60-year-old white guys. Retrospectively, I clearly was their token. Okay. 
But I'll spare you that conversation for another day. That was the greatest gift ever because they taught me how to read a profit and loss statement. I came to understand which you know, aspects of the Department of Anesthesia were revenue generators and which weren't. And so when we had to take a salary cut because University of California wasn't doing well and basically in 1996, 1997, UCSF and Stanford decided that they were going to merge. It was the height of the Sil- it was the height of Silicon Valley boom, height of managed care, and they had this brilliant idea they were going to merge. It resulted in a pay cut for all of us every year for several years. And I went to Dr. Miller and I said, thank you for putting me on the finance committee. I have come to see that my department is a cash cow. And I don't understand if we're generating all this money for the department, why am I taking a pay cut? And he told me there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it because University of California has a step system. And basically you get a raise whether you're doing the right thing or not. And you get a pay cut whether you're doing the right thing or not. It has nothing to do with how much you generate. And that made no sense to me. So, you know, I had three little kids and I was commuting an hour, hour and a half one way. My husband was commuting an hour the other way. We looked at each other and said, all right, we live in you know, the Bay Area. It's the height of the Silicon Valley boom. We're taking a pay cut. This is not a viable option. So, you know, we picked up and we moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, why? Well, because my commute was five minutes, the cost of living was very low, and the job seemed like a great idea. So I went to work for an anesthesia group who thought that, you know, they wanted a pain specialist. They told me, oh, yes, we need a pain specialist, blah, blah, blah. There was a slight disconnect. They thought I was going to do blocks in the back of the recovery room. And I, that was not exactly what I had in mind. Come to find out, that it was actually the hospital that wanted that multidisciplinary program and they were pressuring this anesthesia group and the anesthesia group thought, oh, we'll get this chick, she can do it for us. But the anesthesia group told me after about six months, well, we're not gonna make you a partner because you don't take call, okay? And you know, pain is not as hard as anesthesia. Now, the joke of the entire thing, you know, when you talk about life lessons where you have these epiphanies, I understood the billing. They did not. Yeah. Right? And the p and <laughs> And I understood the P&L and they did not. And they told me that I was a loss leader and I showed them the codes and my reimbursement. And I said, not only am I not a loss leader, but you guys are, this is, let's see, 1999. You guys are only paying me 225 thousand dollars and I can collect all right several million dollars for you people what is wrong with this picture yeah and they're like no 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 you're all wrong and I said okay that's great I'm all wrong and I left and I went to start the multidisciplinary program that the hospital wanted and went into private practice for myself they made me a medical director they agreed to build out this multidisciplinary program. Fast forward about six months, I'm off the hook busy. I've now hired two mid-levels. There are no more hours in the day. And so I go to the hospital and say, I want to form a joint venture because I have no more hours in the day. And basically this can't grow. I need to bring in more docs. And 
I want you to support. You're making money from the facility fee. You're making money from imaging. You're making money from the PTs. You know, I want you to come into this deal with me and help me hire some docs. Is this an HOPD situation? Yes. Okay. And they looked at me and said, we are the thousand bed hospital, the 800 pound gorilla. And you're just a doctor. Why do we have to do this? And I said, well, let me help you understand this. If I leave, you don't actually have a program because I am the program. And their response was, oh, we'll get somebody else. And I said, okay, fine. And went out and I'll fast forward for you so I don't monopolize the whole conversation, but you know, went out, bought a lot, built a 25,000 square foot medical office building that initially was supposed to be an ambulatory surgery center and clinic on the first floor and then lease space on the second floor. Within six months of moving in, we had outgrown that space. So the entire downstairs became an, a multi-specialty ASC for all of the anesthesiologists and pain people out there. It had 12 PACU beds. That will give you an idea of the volume that we were able to see. And then upstairs became a clinic space with 23 exam rooms. In the end, there were 11 physicians, a, a mid-level for each one of them. And then we added on other related services. So you are clearly at an inflection point there. You're at this place where I know what I'm collecting. I know that I'm not only underpaid, but not appreciated, which is kind of the most offensive part of the whole thing. And you were vetting your options. Can you take me through sort of the due diligence process that you went through to try to figure out, should I build? Should I find another practice? Should I move out of town? I'm sure there were a few things you were considering at that point. So, you know, the I think the bigger question was when I left the hospital, where do I go to? Do I buy a building? Do I build a building? How big is this building? What am I actually going to add to it? And, you know, moving out of town, I have to tell you, was a at one point a consideration. But I we made a list of the things I liked and I didn't, not only I, my husband, liked and didn't like. So, you know, we moved from San Francisco, as he likes to say, not because the weather was terrible or it was an ugly place to live, all right? But the cost of living was really high and the commute was ridiculous, okay? Or maybe it was the other way around. In any case, right? When we thought, you know, okay, this is not working. We, you know, I need, I need another opportunity. Then it became, okay, well, where could we move? Well, I had a list of criteria. Having grown up in New York and having gone to school in Boston, I didn't want to live any place that it snowed in order to, to get my three kids out the door to go to school, right? That takes away half the country. I wanted a place that had a low cost of living. When we left San Francisco, the nanny told us, and you know, now it's many years later, so I'm not going to get in trouble, but we were paying her $45,000 under the table. And she told us, it's a good thing you're leaving because you're grossly underpaying us, uh, underpaying me, right? So I knew I wanted to live someplace where the cost of living was low. And I wanted to live someplace that was family oriented, that I could go to the kids' events and that I didn't spend all day in the car. So we looked at jobs in Dallas. We went back and looked at a job in Los Angeles. We looked at other places and on balance realized that Baton Rouge answered many of those questions. 
Because I actually had already, you know, I understood the numbers. I knew how many cases I was doing, procedures I was doing a week, and basically put together a pro forma of what, how many cases I would need to do in order to have an ambulatory surgery center be profitable. So I knew that I only had to do 25 cases a week, which is nothing for a pain specialist, right? In order to float that ambulatory center, surgery center by myself, all right? So, and I already knew that I had another two docs who were coming, one who was literally about to come and one who I had hired was going to come in six months. So if they did the same 25 a week, right, we would be absolutely flush. So the, the decision to build the surgery center was essentially a, not, a no-brainer. In terms of build from scratch versus buy, we actually worked with a commercial realtor to understand and with an architect. Happy to share the, the who. As a matter of fact, our architect is a well-known healthcare architect who actually built, he's the guy who wrote the code for ASCs. His name is Bill Lindemann. Awesome. So real quick for listeners, anybody listening, apmsuccess.com slash 139. We will put links to all of the resources that Dr. Weitz mentions in the course of uh, her build out and, and her career adventures here. So basically, you know, we came to understand that if you buy an existing building and you have to basically renovate it, that you get a renovated building that may or may not be what you want. And that if you build from scratch, you get exactly what you want. So, you know, as far as how did we end up with this lot, that was absolutely fortuitous. Basically, we were, the commercial realtor said, I know you don't need a two and a half acre lot. I know you're not going to want to build this much of a building, but it's a fire sale. And it happened to be on I-10. So if anybody knows I-10, I-10, my husband says is the Santa Monica Freeway, but actually it runs from the pier in Santa Monica, California, all the way to Jacksonville, Florida. And this lot is literally on I-10 in Baton Rouge. Okay. So it, it became both a good investment as well as a place to, to do business. Now, I'm gonna, I'll shut up in one second, Justin, but I do want to, to, to segue for a second for all of the listeners who are out there in these Facebook groups going, real estate is by far the way to make a truckload of money as a side gig. Okay. Let me tell you that the best real estate investment you will ever make is owning your own space for your practice because you control the space. If you buy rental properties, let's say, you know, apartments or even commercial, but you are not the tenant, you have no guarantee how long that tenant is going to stay, what you're going to have to put in TIs and so forth. By owning my building and being the, the person who's renting it, I knew that my practice was going to stay there. I knew ultimately that the ambulatory surgery center was going to stay there. Gives you a lot more control. If we could dive down into the weeds for one second on the, a billing and a revenue question, because this is something, especially if you're going from a hospital environment to a, an office or a surgery center based environment, 
understanding the difference in facility fee at these in, in these different places going from a place you know hospitals can charge a lot more for the same stuff than you can if you do something in your office and the surgery center tends to kind of slot in the middle so can you describe how you had sort of walked through that okay i'm going to clarify a couple of things first of all when let's look at a global cost okay let's say for an esi if I do an ESI in my office, that's considered a non-facility, okay? If I do it in a hospital outpatient setting or I do it in ASC, either of those is a facility. So as a result, there's something called a facility fee. If you look at the total reimbursement for a procedure, basically, the facility fee usually represents about two thirds and the pro fee, the professional fee, what you get, it only is going to represent about one third. Okay. So if I do this procedure in my office, there are a couple of key points. Number one, I'm only getting the professional fee. There is no version where I get the facility fee. Some Nowadays, Medicare actually has, if you go to the Medicare fee schedule lookup, you will see that there is for any CPT code, a facility and a non-facility payment amount. So if you do that ESI in your office, you will get the non-facility amount, which is actually higher because basically they're compensating you for your overhead, okay? That said, not every single commercial insurer has what is called a site of service differential, meaning that they don't all give you more because you're doing it in your office. Okay? And, and this is where really understanding the business of medicine comes from. Okay, Let's say that you have this brilliant idea that you want to do procedures in your office. And you go out and you get the C-arm and you get the tech to help you run the C-arm and you buy the RF machine and you have all this other equipment, okay? You sure as hell better know that the reimbursement, the differential between your pro fee from the non-facility and the facility is enough extra that not only it covers all of your additional overhead, okay? but that you're actually making a profit because otherwise why is it worth it to you to go through the hassle of doing it in your office? Okay. Now let's say that you're at least breaking even. Should I do it in my office or should I do it in an ASC or a hospital outpatient setting? Chances are not, not only chances are uh, I'll make it pretty much absolute statement you are not going to get paid any component of the facility fee for that hospital outpatient procedure. Okay? If you do it in a hospital setting, number one, they tend to be grossly inefficient. The turnover times are lousy. Chances are you have to actually go to that facility if it's, you know, not if your office is not in a medical office building attached to a hospital. All right. And you have no means of getting any piece of that pie. Okay. If you can buy into 
an ambulatory surgery center. We can have a whole separate conversation about should you start an ambulatory surgery center? That's a, a we'll be here for hours, right? But let, let's say, can I at least buy into a surgery center? A surgery center is going to get a facility fee. If you have ownership of some amount, right, in that surgery center, then you can partake in some component of that facility fee. So it's a way to leverage yourself without necessarily taking on the risk of, of doing it in your office. Can you expand on that last sentence without taking on the risk of doing it in your office? Sure, because if you do it in your office, you need, well, there are several things. Number one, you need to have a room big enough for that C-arm. Right. I mean, it, it, it's 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 multifactorial. It's about when I do procedures in my office, I have to consider the flow. Right. How do people get checked in? Where do they get recovered? It, can I do more than one case if I only have one procedure room? OK, then the turnover, what happens while that, that room is being turned over? It's an inefficiency. I have to you know, I'm, I have to have that space there all the time. I have a tech. If Unless I have multiple docs and multiple, or I'm doing only procedures, right? What else is that tech going to be doing? Because it's very hard to hire a rad tech for a half a day. You may be able to hire one part-time for a whole day or two whole days, but again, it, it's an expense. And then the other thing is that there are supplies and disposables that cost money that you, that you have to have. So, you know, it may be if you can negotiate a high enough rate that at the end, when you add, I need extra space that I'm paying rent for, I need extra personnel that I'm paying for, I have extra equipment that I'm paying for, all of these are risks, right? And there, and they are some of these things are things that are not being utilized 100% of the time because I'm not doing procedures 100% of the time. Whereas if the if I can partake in the ASC profit, right, I may actually end up more efficient and get money and have less risk. So you know, just as an aside, so that everybody is really clear in our ASC. The pain docs and actually anybody who can do a fast case got two rooms, all right? So essentially, and I'll come back to those PACU beds that I was telling you about here in a minute. Oh, that's the other risk. You know, if you do procedures in your office, are you going to sedate people? Are you going to, you know, you have to, you have to deal with all of the OSHA rules. You have to make sure that you have clean equipment? Are you going to sedate people? What's the mechanism for that? How long are you going to recover them for? And, you know, let's say you're doing spinal cord implants. Chances are you're still going to have to go either to a hospital outpatient setting or to an ASC, right? But I'll come back to the ASC story. You can run two rooms simultaneously. So basically, you know, they bring the patient into room number one, put on the monitors, the get the patient positioned, do everything. I walk in, I do my procedure. I take off my gloves. 
I walk across the hall, that next patient is already teed up on the table, ready for me to go. So we could easily do 25 short cases in a half day. If you are doing these procedures in your office, maybe you can do that if you have two rooms, but then you're paying for those two rooms. So you made this decision, you know, you, you, you looked at the alternatives, your, your broker says, we found a great spot off of I-10. We think that it, this is the, the place of the, you know, going to be the promised land for you. Was there a moment as you're processing this decision and you're signing on that lease and you're breaking ground on a place that you hope one day is going to be able to make you money, but this is a, this is like an orders of magnitude significantly increased risk for you and your career and financially. So can you maybe take us, what, what were you thinking at that time? Was there, was there doubt for you? Was there uncertainty? Was there a moment of like freaking out or did you, did you, were you able to see all the way sort of to the end and, and you had a confidence from the beginning that it was going to work? I think the error in that statement is from the beginning, because by the time I actually decided to buy that lot, I had already had five years in academics at UCSF, and I'd already had two years of doing the private practice thing on my own, where basically, you know, it is test, 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 test. I mean, I looked at the schedule every day. I looked at at the, you know, my billing reports every day. I knew exactly how many, you know, I had, if I tell you how many Excel spreadsheets of, and charts of, how, how much are our charges going up? What are our collections look like? What's the trajectory? All right, you know, what's the trajectory? How, how many referrals do we get? What's the waiting period for a uh, new patient? We're bringing on another doc. Where are we going to put them? So, you know, really by the time I went to break ground on this building and I already had, you know, two mid-levels and two physicians, I had a pretty good idea of what that trajectory was going to look like. So by that point, my angst over this, you know, really wasn't great. And I will tell you that that ambulance, I was profitable from the practice perspective, you know, really from the moment I opened my doors when I left the anesthesia group. Now, I will tell you that I was extremely fortunate. We lived entirely on my husband's salary and every penny that I made in my private practice went towards buying and fueling that building of that building and the ambulatory surgery center. Now I will tell you that we opened the doors of the ASC in April and were profitable by June, having paid off all of the startup costs and the operating costs, right? But again, because I had already, I already knew from my experience, my previous experiences. Now, the thing that I think gets people in trouble, and, and I want to point that out for everybody who's listening, is if you are currently an employed physician, you cannot think, I'm going to go into private practice and have had your head in the sand. You are uniquely positioned at the moment, Okay. Pay attention to what is going on. Ask for the reports. They may not necessarily give you the detailed financials, but you certainly should be able to get billing reports. How many patients did you see? What's the payer mix? All right. You know, are you seeing mostly Medicare? Are you seeing mostly comp? Can you, can you, you know, manipulate your payer mix by 
there are a number of things we can talk about how you do that, but get reports from how many referral sources do you have? If they won't give you that report, keep track of that yourself. Understand every aspect of how the practice that you're currently in works, right? You know, one of the things that I said to you, Justin, was that my husband is a urologist who's always worked for a multi-specialty group. And he has not a private practice bone in his body. Why? Because he's the guy, like a lot of people who shows up, the first patient's at eight, he shows up with his coffee in hand at 7.55, puts on his white coat, walks into the first room, says, hey, Mr. Jones, sees Mr. Jones, writes his note, moves to the next room, day goes by, end of the day comes, he takes off the white coat, grabs his keys, and off he goes. Say to him, so Alex, how do people actually get scheduled to see you? What do you mean? You know, they call. And then who does what? I don't know. Well, okay, you need to schedule a case in the OR. How does that happen? I don't know. My MA does that. Right? If you are Alex, all right, then and you think you want to go into private practice, now is the time to really start to understand each one of those steps, because that is how you decrease that anxiety of, is this actually going to work? All right. Because if you have your head in the sand and then you, and you go, oh, I think this sounds like a great idea. I'm going to do it. There's a whole lot in, that's involved. It is not difficult at all. But there is a stepwise progression of what has to happen. And you need to understand that stepwise progression. And then the last thing I want to say, Justin, about, you know, you asked me, did I have a vision for the end? I want to be crystal clear about this. I had all of these related businesses, but they didn't start because I wanted to have yet another business. Right? They started because I was doing procedures and I got annoyed at the slow turnover time in the hospital outpatient setting and realized that this ASC was going to make me far more efficient and give my patients much better patient care. I, I added physical therapy because I was sending them to a physical therapist and they would come back and they would tell me, oh, I saw the PT assistant who showed me some exercise and they never did manual therapy on me. And then I'd have to explain to the patient, wait a minute, I wrote an order that said do X, Y, and Z. And so instead of doing cleanup on aisle nine all the time, by bringing it into my practice, right, as, as a related business, I actually provided the patient with a better experience. Same thing when you send somebody to a radiologist to an imaging center and the radiologist is, you know, not a neuroradiologist and they're reading a spine MRI, right? And so ultimately, the reality is this, the insurance companies are going to pay someone. The patient is going to pay someone. So if they happen to pay me and a related business that I own, but it ends up having them provide a better service for that patient and for that insurance company, that's not a bad thing. One thing you mentioned that I just want to zoom in on, and then I have another question. I think knowing yourself, you know, you mentioned your husband, Alex, and come in, see patients, provide excellent and attentive care, and then not worry about the details. And he apparently is happy and thriving in that environment. If that's you, 
then there's this glamorous idealized, you know, picture of private practice that can be desirable. But if it does, if you're not invigorated at the idea of trying to understand, get your head wrapped around your payer mix and how the billing works and your top 10 CPT codes and what that's going to mean if you move them from a hospital to a surgery center and or office, if that doesn't, if you don't like eat that for breakfast, then you should take a hard look in the mirror and make sure that a life altering transition like Dr. White's, the one that you went through is really the course of action that makes the most sense. And one thing that I'm struck by as you sort of are are describing your story is the the continuity of momentum between what you're doing in the HOPD and then building and taking doctors with, obviously I'm, I'm thinking like non-compete, non-solicit, you know, you got patients and obviously there was, you continued to have a high volume. So can you talk a little bit about the transition and what you had to navigate, what you had to think about and how you managed to preserve momentum for your business as you went to, to the new site? Absolutely. So the anesthesia company did, the anesthesia group was not smart enough to have an non-compete and it wouldn't have been upholdable anyway because they didn't have anybody to compete with me. So that was why they brought me on, right? So that was pretty easy. The hospital, I was not a hospital employee. I was actually the medical director for this multi-modality program that I built for them. And the docs did not come that I hired until after I left them. So that was not an issue in terms of non-competes, non-solicits. I have to tell you, I've had my experience with non-competes and non-solicits where I've been the employer. You know, everybody says, oh, I don't want to sign a non-compete. The reality of it is that in today's day and age, non-competes are indeed upholdable, but they are very specific, okay? And the both the employer, so if you start your practice and you want to hire a doc, or if you are the employee needs a good healthcare attorney in the state where they are and to look at the current case law, because the case law changes all the time. Right. So non-competes that say you cannot practice anywhere in the entire state of California is not going to be upholdable. Okay. Because they usually are very limited. So it, you know, it may be depending on where you, you live, you know, like in Louisiana, it's it it can't be in a parish where you have an office. So, you know, if you know you're gonna open a satellite. When you're going to hire another doc, open the satellite before you sign the new contract so that the non-compete actually applies to two parishes. I mean, so is it, it, let me just say that it, every aspect of this, whether it is how do you continue that momentum, and, and, and I'll come back and talk about momentum in a second. Momentum doesn't necessarily have to be hiring of docs. Momentum can be they're changing the reimbursement and the thing we used to be paid for is now being bundled or the thing we used to be paid for now is getting cut. All right. And this is going to sound terrible. This is a game. All right. There is nothing more to this than it's a game. If you like to play games, if you like Wordle, if you like spelling bee, all right, on the New York Times, this is just a game. The rules are really pretty simple. And if you make it your business to learn the rules and to anticipate the changes in the rules and stay one step ahead of the game, you will not only survive, but you will thrive, right? But again, 
if you are not interested in doing that, if you want, if, if every time something happens, it takes you by surprise, you're going to end up in trouble. It, but to come back to the non-compete, we actually wanted to hire a pain doc who had a non-compete, who was in town. We desperately needed help. And, you know, I, I recruited the heck out of this person and went to them and said, you know, I understand you have a non-compete. What is it going to take to get you out of the non-compete? Right. And ultimately, long story short, got a dollar amount that it was going to take to buy them out of the non-compete. We did the math. We figured out how long is it going to take us to break even if we buy this person out of the non-compete, right? Particularly if their patients follow them, right? And how much revenue can that generate? And what's the ramp up look like of that? And ultimately struck a deal and the person wanted to go, like the person wanted to leave. Ultimately struck a deal where they paid part of the non-compete and we paid not part of the non-compete with the condition that they would stay with us for a certain amount of time. And it turned out to be a win-win. Okay. But the two things I would tell you about that are number one, virtually everything in life is negotiable. Okay. So, you know, in my vocabulary, when you tell me, no, I anticipate that really means maybe. And then the corollary to that is when you negotiate with somebody, explain to them how it's going to benefit them. The worst thing that you can do, you know, understand, again, back to these Facebook groups about how strong you're supposed to be in negotiations and how you're supposed to stand up for yourself and all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, you should do that. And you should know your worth and you should know where the line in the sand is and when you're going to walk. Okay, but that's what you hold close to your chest and you don't tell the other person in talking to the other person. You really want to come across as how what I'm offering you is going to help you put yourself in their position. Tell them how you're going to solve their problem. I promise you in the in the long run, it will get you way further then if you come at this from the, I'm entitled to X, Y, and Z, and that this is my bottom line. Well, and that's how we got this, this stock to come because, you know, for them, they, and, and for them to pay part of the amount of getting out of their non-compete. So I know that you see a lot of doctors who are interested in practicing in the private practice setting, especially like office-based and also who are interested in launching practices. So in the few minutes that we have left, maybe share a couple of common mistakes that you can you perceive or or mindset perhaps mistakes or you know errors, assumptions, things that things that are happening right now in the trenches that doctors should be aware of that they might they may face this when they go to take these steps. Number 1, it's going to take longer than you think. Okay? It from the from the day the longest thing is to get yourself contracted. Number one, credentialing and contracting are not the same thing. Credentialing is the good housekeeping seal of approval. Contracting is how much are you going to pay me per line item on a, for a CPT codes. Number two, don't believe that you cannot negotiate your contracted rates. There's a whole lot of misinformation out there that is a small practice or a solo practitioner that you can't negotiate your rates. You absolutely can. There's a process for that. 
it takes time, but you certainly can. Now, you can't tell them, oh, you should just give me more money. If you're going to renegotiate your rates, think about what's your niche. And actually, that's one of the key things when you start your own practice. And even as you grow it is what's your niche? What makes you different? What, what, you know, what do you bring to the table that solves a problem that that doesn't currently exist or is underserved? Okay. So you can negotiate your rates. It's going to take three to six months to get those contracts in place. Okay. So when I said it's going to take longer than you think, understand that there are, there are startup costs that exist before you make dollar one. From the day that you open your doors, no matter how magnificent you are, in, and even if you don't have a non-compete or, in, or a non-solicit and you open literally across the street from where you were, not everybody is following you. It will take you some time to ramp up. The corollary to that is also every patient when you open your new door, new doors is a new patient. You're not going to be able to see them at the same rate as a follow-up. It's going to take time to get them into your EMR. It's going to take time to establish them as that patient. So if you can see 20 patients in a day, let's say, just as an example, those first couple of weeks, you're going to see 10 patients a day because it's going to take time to work out the kinks. You need a process for absolutely everything. I was talking earlier about the fact that you need to look around to how do people get scheduled, how do referrals happen, how do prior authorizations happen, all of these things. Each one of those things needs a written process, right? They, they are not going to happen just because. And ultimately, the, you will have to be the driving force for them because it's your baby. You have to tell people what you want. And then, and the list could go on and on and on, but I think I want to end with probably the most important thing is don't abdicate your role. A lot of times when people start a practice or even when they have a practice and they're running it, they hire a practice manager or an office manager and they hire consultants to help them run the practice. It's great if they help you but they should not be the ones running the practice for you. You need to understand what they do. You need to give them guidance. You need to actually be an active participant in this. Don't abdicate your role thinking, oh, they know more than I do. I'll give you a great example of that. I have learned over the years how to read every single contract. Right? Give for, you know, whether it's, a lease, whether it is hiring a new doc, ultimately lawyers, I'm going to pick on the lawyers here for a second. Ultimately lawyers don't know the business of medicine. Okay. Same thing with the accountants. They can crunch the numbers and give you a PL statement, but they can't address your PL statement in the context of workflow. An attorney can write a contract based on what you tell them, but they can't tell you whether the amount that you want to offer that new doctor can be supported by the revenue that you're generating. So you cannot abdicate your role in this. I love that bit of wisdom at the end there. And I totally agree. I find, you know, people ask me, why should you, why do you want to see a contract if I have a lawyer look at it too? And it's like, well, there's a lot of about the business 
especially in pain management, you know, the unique compensation structures and how it relates to volume and RVUs and collections. And without that context, it's difficult. It's difficult to give the intangible but very important feedback about whether or not an offer makes sense. So that's a perfect place to stop. We didn't even get through half of the material that I wanted to cover, so we're going to definitely have to have you back, Dr. Weitz. Thank you very much for your time today and joining us on Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.